This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Hello. Well, while they get that fixed, can I say good morning to you? You were caught up in that, weren't you? I was too. Yeah. I think that was called the temptation and a half of Jesus, all right? There were actually three of them. And uh, and we only have them in summary form in Scripture. But uh, those of you who watched the Jesus miniseries a few years ago probably recognized that footage. I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Ron, and uh, especially for those of you who haven't been here before, let me give you a little bit of the lay of the land. On the inside of your program, you're going to find a half sheet of, of notes. They're fill-in-the-blank kind of notes. So you can uh, take the pencil that you found uh, on your chair and you can fill in the blanks as we move along. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that all of you are here because we are, we are beginning a brand new series of sermons about the life of Jesus. And if I were to take a little bit of time and talk to you about this church, there are actually only three things that we do in this church. We exist to connect people to God and others. And Bob already talked with you about that this morning, about you getting connected with God. And church is a wonderful place for you to get connected with God. That's its purpose. The second thing we do is to develop people as followers of Christ. Because that's the central mission of a church as opposed to a club or an organization. So it's to get you you connected to God and then develop you as a follower of Christ. And then last of all, to move you into lifestyles of service. And we already got a little bit of a taste of that when we talked about painting all the fire hydrants yesterday and all the other things that we do as a church. So for the next few minutes, we're going to focus on that central part of our mission. And that is developing us as followers of Christ. You see... When, when time has been completed and the end of all things is here, I think we are going to find that Jesus was the central figure of the human race. The absolute central figure of the human race. Let me see if I can help you grasp that for a minute. There's about 6,000 years of recorded human history, maybe a little bit more than that, but let's take a conservative estimate of 6,000 years of recorded human history, and let's just suppose that this morning we had a timeline up here, and it stretched from that curtain to that curtain. That's about 30 feet. So we've got 30 feet representing 6,000 years. I want you to write up just in, in up in the corner of your sermon notes, how many inches of that 30 feet do you think would represent the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry life? Just jot in a, a, a figure up there. You want to know what the actual answer is? It would be a little bit less than one quarter of an inch. Out of the entire 6,000 years of recorded human history. Now, think with me for a minute. What could Jesus have done in that quarter of an inch that would so impact the entire human race that today, some 2,000 years later, one out of every three people who walks the face of the earth claims to be a follower of Him? That's some serious power 
in a tiny space, isn't it? It's one of the reasons you know he was not human, that he was God. And when it's all said and done, we will find that Jesus is the central figure of the human race. Now, not only the three-and-a-half-year span of time, but there were some other constraints that Jesus lived within. And I'm going to defer to a small sheet of paper that you have on the inside of your program, and I want to read it to you as well. It was written by Dr. James Allen Francis in a sermon that he delivered back in 1926. But it has some thoughts that I think are well worth our consideration. A child is born in an obscure village. He's brought up in another obscure village. He works in a carpenter shop until he's 30, and then for three brief years is an itinerant preacher. And if you, if you don't know what itinerant means, it means he just traveled from place to place and didn't have a single congregation. Proclaiming a message and living a life. He never writes a book. He never holds an office. He never raises an army. He never has a family of his own. He never owns a home. He never goes to college. He never travels 200 miles from the place where he was born. He gathers a little group of friends about him and teaches them his way of life. And while still a young man, the tide of popular feeling turns against him. One denies him. Another betrays him. He's turned over to his enemies. He goes through the mockery of a trial. He's nailed to a cross between two thieves and when dead is laid in a borrowed grave by the kindness of a friend. Those are the facts of his human life. He rises from the dead and today we look back across 1900 years and ask, what kind of trail has he left across the centuries? When we try to sum up his influence, all the armies that have ever marched, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned are absolutely trivial in their influence on mankind compared with that of this one solitary life. That's the Jesus we're going to talk about. Only God could do that, live within those constraints, and so change the course of human history. We not only study the life of Jesus so that, so that we can grasp and comprehend it, but I, uh, up there in your notes under introduction, I want you to write this little triad. A triad is three words that are connected. Okay? And the triad goes like this. It goes, think, act, be. You write that? Think, act, and be. The purpose of studying Jesus' life is so that we can be like Him, as I said to you before, so that we could develop as followers of Christ or, or be like Him. But in order to be like Jesus, we have to act like Jesus. And in order to act like Jesus, we have to learn to think like Jesus. In other words, we have to begin to grasp and absorb his heart and his mind and the way he looked at life and the way he looked at people and the way he approached living every day. And so over the next several weeks, 
As I talk to you about Jesus' life, I want to encourage you to absorb as much as you can, not not just to be wowed and amazed by how Jesus was, but I want to encourage you to absorb as much as you can of Jesus' heart and His mind. Because if you begin to get the heart and the mind of Christ, it will begin to change your life. Because here's the simple truth. You could mimic Jesus. You could do what Jesus did, probably short of the miracles, okay? But you could do what Jesus did. But if you don't do it from the same heart that Jesus did it from, what you do will not accomplish what He did in your life or in anybody else's. They will just be empty deeds. And and so that's what I want to encourage you to absorb. And that's certainly what I'm going to try to absorb because I've prayed that God would change my heart and change my life so that I could become more and more like Jesus, not just acting like Him, but actually thinking like Him, acting like Him, and then becoming like Him. Now, so I was praying about this message earlier this morning. I was thinking, the amazing thing is that God left heaven and came to earth. Think about this for a minute. If God could have figured out a way to solve your sin problem and my sin problem and to bring us forgiveness without coming to earth and therefore never came to earth as Jesus Christ, but God always remained in heaven, you realize how different your Bible would read? You realize how far off and distant God would seem? For it was Jesus who brought God near to us. And so as we study, we're going to see that the very first thing that Jesus did was He approached the core issue of your life and mine. And Jesus started at the beginning of His ministry, right where the rubber meets the road, right at the bottom line, and that is, how are we going to deal with sin? Can I tell you that nothing will determine the quality of your life or the productivity of your life in, in this life or in eternity? Nothing will have a greater impact on it than how you deal with or don't deal with sin in your life. And I know that that's, that's probably not fun to hear, but it's the truth. And I know that as pastors we love to stand up and talk about how marvelous the grace of God is And it is. But I can tell you this. If you're content to live all of your life just leaning on and relying on God's grace and you get up and say, oh, another day and I'm going to live it in sin, I know, but God's going to forgive me. I can tell you that at the end of your life, the joy that you will have gotten out of life and the blessing that you will have been will be only a shadow of what they could have been if you had decided to actually deal with sin and not just rest on God's grace. So Jesus comes, and the very first thing that happens in his ministry, Jesus is baptized, launches his ministry, and that's where we're going to pick it up this morning, and that's where you saw kind of the beginning in the video. I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses, and we're going to take it in chunks. The first 11 verses of the fourth chapter of Matthew, and we'll take a look at how Jesus deals with sin. 
Then, that's after Jesus was baptized, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Now, as a pastor, almost every time I teach through that passage, someone will say to me, Whoa! (laughs) If that's how the Holy Spirit did Jesus, is the Holy Spirit going to do that in my life? I mean, the moment I decide to become a Christian, is the Holy Spirit going to lead me out in the wilderness and I'm going to get tempted by the devil? Okay, let's pull over the side of the road a minute and recognize that there was a purpose in this that you and I don't serve, and therefore the Holy Spirit will not do this in our lives. The Bible very clearly says that the purpose of Jesus being tempted was so that He could deal with sin and defeat it on your half and on your behalf and on my behalf. And so the Holy Spirit caused Jesus to be tempted so that He could defeat sin and temptation. But the Bible very clearly says that the Spirit of God will not do that in our lives. James chapter 1 says, Remember when you are being tempted not to say, God is tempting me. Why? Because God is never tempted to do wrong and He never tempts anyone else. So every once in a while, someone will say to me, Pastor, you just don't understand. I have temptations I don't think anybody else has. Sorry, it's not that easy. Okay? God doesn't give you that kind of an out. In fact, that's another whole sermon in and of itself. But the bottom line is when you and I are tempted, it's not because God is tempting us or leading us into temptation. In fact, God never does that. In this particular case, he led Jesus so that Jesus could meet the devil head on and defeat him. Okay? Now, let's get into the rest of the passage. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. Yeah. Would you say that was kind of an understatement? 40 days, yeah, that I'm sure he was. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, I want you to tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, there's something going on here that I call the evil twist. Here's what I mean by that. Why did Jesus fast? Why did he do without food? Well, he fasted and did without food in order to draw very near to God so that nothing would distract him from the presence of God, not even taking the time to eat a meal. And he he was saying to God, I want to be so near to you and so next to you that nothing, not even food, will come between the two of us. And and, and I want my emotions to be completely focused on you. And, And several of us in this church have done periods of fasting, some as long as 40 days, doing what Jesus did. But here's what I find interesting. You see, Satan doesn't care what you do to get next to God if you will allow him to twist it just a little bit. That's what I call the evil twist. So here's Jesus fasting to get next to God and Satan comes and uses that fasting as a point of vulnerability in his life to try to tempt him to sin against the God that he's trying to get next to. How does that work in your life and mine? 
You decide, I'm going to get next to God. I haven't gone to church in years. I'm going to go to church and get next to God. Good thing. So you come to church, and Satan kind of does the evil twist, and he gets you next to somebody in the church that's in a spiritual downtime in their life. And because it's a church, we don't throw people out that are struggling spiritually. We try to help them along. But what you know what that does mean? It does mean that there are people sitting in our audience this morning that, believe it or not, are not right next to Jesus this morning. And I've seen people come to church and get next to somebody that's struggling spiritually, and Satan uses that as a temptation in their life and they turn around and walk away and they say, eh, church is full of hypocrites. The very thing that they did to get next to God became a point of temptation. By the way, if Satan did this to Jesus, don't you think he would do this to us? Sure he would. I've seen Christians, long-time Christians, say, you know something? I really need, you know what Jesus said right here? Man doesn't live by bread alone. I need to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the very next thing that happens is they decide that they are going to read their Bible every day and they're going to get to know God's Word. And Satan comes along with a little evil twist and he says, fine, read your Bible every day. And they become the most judgmental Christian you can imagine because the more they they know, the more they beat people over the head with it. you understand? There's a very, very important point for all of us to get. It is wonderful to draw near to God, but don't even for a heartbeat think that as soon as I do something that will draw me near to God, I can drop my guard because it's at that point that Satan will come in with the little evil twist. And the next thing you know, what you did to get next to God actually becomes a source of temptation. Now, what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn. We can learn that we must develop a hunger for the real thing. You see, it's not what you know, but what you're hungry for that determines the quality of your life. I've heard pastors talk about this and say, you know the great thing about what Jesus did whenever whenever Satan came with a temptation? Why, Jesus would always meet it with a quotation from God's Word. And yes, every single time in all three of these, Jesus quoted the Bible to Satan. But And, and it's like pastors say, you get Scriptures in and you load them like bullets in your gun, Right? And when Satan comes and he comes with a temptation, you aim your gun at the temptation, you fire a scriptural bullet at it and it blows it up. Well, that's probably a little oversimplistic. You know what Jesus is really saying? It wasn't the fact that Jesus quoted scripture. It was the scripture that he quoted. You know what he was really saying to Satan? You know, Satan... It's not actually what you know. It's what you're hungry for that determines what you become. I want you to write that down. It's what you hunger for that determines what you become. 
Here's how that works. If you allow yourself to be hungry for something, what do you usually eventually do? You find it and you what? Eat it. That's exactly right. Because what you allow yourself to be hungry for eventually determines what you eat. What you eat eventually determines how you feel and what you look like. Correct? Yeah. It's the same spiritually. What you allow yourself, and by the way, I'm using that terminology very clearly, and it's very carefully chosen. What you allow yourself to become hungry for determines what you spiritually ingest. And what Jesus is saying is, Satan, you need to understand that I'm not going to allow myself to become hungry for that bread that I could make out of those stones because there's something on the inside of me that I'm hungry for that's far greater than that, and I will never allow that hunger to to replace the real hunger in my life, and that is for God's Word and God's presence, and that's why I'm here. You know, my challenge for all of us, even if you've never been to this church before, and even if you're not a Christian yet, my challenge is for you to ask yourself, what am I really hungry for? Because what you're really hungry for will determine the aim and the direction of your life. And that's the very first thing. That's why the first temptation, if you look in your notes, temptation number one was called the desire to get what I want. Hmm. That starts rather early in life, does it not? Yes. We are born with that desire. I want what I want. And, and that can lead us very clearly into sin. There's, there's the words of an old hymn that I think I've included in your notes called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And basically what that hymn is saying is if you develop and cultivate within your heart and your spirit this hunger and thirst after Jesus, and after God, and to be in their presence. And, and that's what you cultivate a hunger for. Look at the words of this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Now notice what happens. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. You see, your appetite for them begins to wane because you recognize that who would be hungry for ground beef when you could have filet mignon? Correct? Is that how that works? Sure. Who would be hungry for that? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's take a look at temptation number two. Temptation number two is the desire to impress others. No one here has that desire, right? Of course you do. That's why you got up this morning and put on clothes. And you took time to put, well, that and a few other things, yes. It's why you put on the particular clothes that you put on. It's why, okay, I won't go there. All right, well, I'll just leave it right there. Let's take a look at this. Then the devil 
took him to the holy city Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. The Scriptures say, He will order His angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. The desire to impress others. You see, Jesus came and he knew he had three years of time, that quarter of an inch space of time, and he had a job to do in that three years, and that was to establish a kingdom that would last forever and that would reach across the breadth of the earth, and he knew that 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 was going to take some very serious strategy. And Satan came along and said, let me help you with that. You know, if you really want people to believe in you, yeah. You know what the key words are in that in that uh, passage of scripture? If you are the Son of God, oh Jesus, if you're the Son of God, you deserve to be worshipped, don't you? If you're the Son of God, you deserve to be followed. If you're the Son of God, you deserve the respect of people. If you're the Son of God, you deserve a life that's better and higher and more convenient than eating with prostitutes and healing blind people. You deserve a life that's better than than traveling from place to place and not even owning a home. You deserve a life that's way better. You deserve a life that should be the envy of every single person who ever lives. You deserve the very, very best. So why not start out that way? Jump. And when the angels come and they catch you, everyone will believe in you. Everyone will want to follow you. There it is. The desire to impress others. You know what this means? What it really means is that you and I must learn to trust God's plan. Was it God's plan for Jesus to jump off the highest point of the temple and for God to dispatch some angels and they would catch Jesus and everybody would say, wow, do that again. That's way cool. Hey, if I become a follower of yours, can I jump off high places and have the angels come and, and gather me up? Wow, everybody will want to follow you. That was not God's plan at all. You know what God's plan was? Rather. It was rather that people would be drawn to Jesus not because the angels were always there and He could wow them. God's plan was that Jesus would reveal the goodness of God. And that people would be drawn to Him because of God's goodness, not because of God's bling-bling or whatever else. You understand? Yeah. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? Do we ever have a problem with trying to impress others? Let me ask you a question, okay? Have you ever done something that you probably shouldn't have done and someone asked you about it in a situation that was embarrassing and you lied? 
Anybody here ever done that? Why'd you lie? Because, now listen, you know the biggest difference between God's plan and ours? God's plan is that you and I would be good people, and our plan is that we would appear good. You know why we lie when someone asks us about something like that? A good person would always tell the truth, right? But in that moment of time, we are less concerned with being good than we are with appearing good. You know, sometimes when we ruthlessly analyze life, it's pretty ugly. Yeah. We all struggle with wanting to impress people. And when we want to impress people too much, we end up crafting our own plan instead of following God's. Because God's not really that interested in impressing people for many, many reasons. And one of the greatest things that He calls us to do is just give up on the idea of impressing people and just follow my plan. So I want to challenge you this morning, even as you got up this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, one of the questions that would be good for you to ask yourself every day is what is God's plan for my life today? And, and then start living it out. Because it, as you get to the end of your life, and sometimes even as you get to the end of the day, you will come to recognize that walking in God's plan is far better than walking in your own. It brings more joy to your life. It brings more joy to the lives of those around you. And at the end of your life, you'll be far more productive than walking in your own plan. So that was temptation number two, was the desire to impress people. Temptation number three, simply stated, would be this, the desire to control people. Now that's something none of us have trouble with, right? Are you kidding? The desire to control people. Boy, have you noticed that these temptations get down to the core of who we are as fallen human beings? Well, these are the areas where we struggle. So let's take a look at this. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world in all their glory. And he said, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the Scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The key word in that passage of Scripture is the word kingdoms. Because kingdoms have a king, and kings have this way of ordering people to do what they want them to do. And the devil is saying to Jesus, you know, you have been God from eternity and you're used to giving orders and now you sit here as a helpless human being with flesh and blood and, 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 and look, you've, you've spent 30 years as, as a son in somebody's home and you went to the carpenter shop and, and, and Joseph was always telling you what to do and your mother Mary was trying to correct you and you're, you're a weak and helpless human being. Wouldn't you like to have some power and authority and control again? It's all there. 
Now, whether we like to admit it or not, every single human being loves power. We all do. Just yesterday, I was right across the street, okay, at a car show. Okay? Several of you went to that car show, right? Most of the cars there, were they underpowered or overpowered? What do you think? Way overpowered. Hundreds of a horsepower. Start out. And get on that thing. I went out to the driving range a little bit later, and you know, the cars that came out of the car show, many of them got over there on um, Stony Point Road, and as soon as they got outside the city limits, you'd hear them kick it down. <laughs> and it was just fun. I mean, they were burning rubber, and, and, and you, know, it, you know why? Every human being loves power. If you don't think so, okay? When your oldest child gets to be about 13, okay? You let them babysit one night, all their siblings, and see what happens. Every human being loves power. We have this desire to control. By the way, that's why we like to impress people. It gives us the opportunity to control their thoughts. That's why we like to be envied by other people because in some measure it gives us control over them and their thoughts and their emotions. Now here's the lesson. Okay, The lesson is this. We must learn to trade control for responsibility. You know, it's such a good thing. It's such a great thing for one human being to actually move another human being. The question is only whether they're going to move them by manipulation or by something that's more holy and righteous. You see, when I get power hungry, I want to manipulate people. I want to manipulate what they think. I want to manipulate how they feel. I want to manipulate what they do. And we've all been there and we all get tempted to do that. And we get frustrated when people won't do what we want them to do. Now, Jesus very clearly said, I came to show you a different paradigm. Take a look at what he said in terms of his paradigm. Jesus called his followers together and said, You know that the rulers of the non-Jewish people love to show their power over the people. And their important leaders love to use all of their authority. But it should not be that way among you. Whoever wants to become great among you must serve the rest of you like a servant. And whoever wants to become the first among you, okay, must serve the rest of you like a slave. In the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many people. Time doesn't permit me to break that whole scripture out for you, but I want you to see this. Every single person in our audience this morning has a certain amount of power in your life. 
There are groups of people over which you hold influence and sway. The question is, will you do it from a position of power and authority or will you do it from a position of service? Will you trade the opportunity you have as a, as a father or mother in your family to try to control your children, will you trade that for the responsibility to serve them? That's a key question. And, and, and that's a challenge for you this morning. If we'll be willing to trade this desire to control people, it, you know, for many of us, it's a simple matter of position. When I view myself as over people, I control them. When I view myself as equal with people, or maybe even under them, it's my responsibility to serve them. As the senior pastor of this church, it's not my, it's not my responsibility to control this church. It's my responsibility to serve this church. It's my responsibility to serve the members of this church, to lift them up and build them up and do the things that I should do so that you can be successful, so that you can grow and develop, so that you can get connected to God, so you can develop as a follower of Christ, and so that you too can then move into a lifestyle of service. As we close, I want you to see one other thing, and that is this. The Bible says, Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. There's a point in here, and that is, Heavenly help is available. I can hear some of you saying, I would be far more successful at dealing with temptation if every time I overcame one, the angels came and said, nice job, man. Okay? I want you to understand that the help of heaven is available to you as well. Take a look here in Hebrews chapter 4. Our high priest, and in parentheses, you can just put Jesus because that, that's if you read the whole passage, you would know he was talking about Jesus. He's able to understand our weaknesses. When he lived on earth, he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Let us then feel very sure that we can come before God's throne where there is grace. And then what does he say about that? There we can receive mercy and grace to help us when we need it. I, I, I want to redefine grace for you because oftentimes we think of grace only in terms of forgiveness. That's not primarily what he's talking about there. He's not talking about we, we, ha we have a Savior who knows how to forgive us. He's talking about the fact we have a Savior who knows how to help us. How is it that Jesus can help you and me when we're tempted? Very, very simply, it's all the way back to where we started. The greatest thing you can ever receive from Jesus regarding sin is not forgiveness. It's to receive His heart and His mind. Because when you receive the heart and mind of Christ, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. 
You know, oftentimes as Christians, I think we come to Christ and say, Lord, could you give me some sort of spiritual inoculation, that kind of a vaccination that makes me impervious to sin? And we think that's the greatest thing Jesus could do for us, is somehow take away temptation. And Scripture very clearly says, no, that's not what Jesus is going to do for us in this life. But what He will do, He will give us His heart and His mind if we're ready to accept it. And when we are, the things of this earth will begin to fade away. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful that you faced temptation and you faced the devil one-on-one. And not just in these three times, but over and over and over again, and you were tempted in every way like we are and yet you were without sin. And then you said, here's my heart. Here's my mind. I make it available to you so that we could be conformed and transformed into your image and to have your mind. Lord, would you bless us with that today? And God, I pray for people in our audience today who have not made the decision yet to become a Christian. I pray that they could see how wonderfully loving and good you are and how gracious you are to come alongside us and to not only give us forgiveness, but that you stand ready to give them your heart and your mind so that they could become good, wonderful people who bless those around them. Father, would you enable us to see that no matter what we struggle with, there is victory in Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.